So we're going to continue with Red Letter Jesus. Last week we took a look at the words of Jesus that were, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then we saw that Jesus gave a defense of the law. He upholded the law. And we considered how Jesus fulfilled the law. How he brought closure to its rule over us. But he still defended it as of God and from God. Now please hear this. It is in that context where he's talking about the fact that he has fulfilled the law that he says these words. <coughs> For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. And then he defends the beauty of the law. But then he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the law. Or enter the kingdom of heaven, sorry. These are really strong words, and they can be misconstrued. For instance, is he telling us that we have to be better than the Pharisees? in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Our, our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees? Well, that's a pretty hard bar. Pretty high bar. Not all of them, of course, the Pharisees. But here's a Pharisee. His name was Saul. We know him as Paul. <clears throat> Look what he writes in Philippians 3 about his life as a Pharisee. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that. It's interesting that he doesn't directly, after those words, specifically speak to the Pharisees and their righteousness. What he does instead is he gives two practical examples of what a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees looks like. In Matthew 5, we read these words. You've heard it said to the people long ago, and this is the law, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He continues, you've heard it said 
that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, by commenting on the need to address not just behavior, murder, adultery, behavior, but also our hearts, our thoughts, that which can't be seen, Jesus is suggesting that the Pharisees' righteousness is only skin deep. Another way of thinking about it is that they follow the letter of the law, yeah. But they ignore the spirit of the law. Let's think about Saul again. He was faultless in his righteousness in regard to the law. But until Christ captured him on that road to Damascus, he was an enemy of Christ. Faultless in righteousness according to the law, but an enemy of the author of the law. You see the problem? Now there would come a time in Jesus' last last week before he was crucified that Jesus came out with both barrels loaded when he talked about the Pharisees because he pointed to the hypocrisy of the skin-deep righteousness of the Pharisees. And he called them hypocrites. You'll look in your Bible and, and you'll find in Matthew 23, uh, usually there's a title there, The Seven Woes on the Teachers of the Law and the Pharisees. And Jesus holds no punches. He says, uh, and I'll just give three examples. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, you major on the minors and ignore the majors altogether. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You see, you're concerned with outward appearance, but you ignore the sinfulness of your hearts. And lastly, another example. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You, come, you camouflage your dead souls with dignity and solemnity, with an appearance of righteousness. So if we step back and, 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 and try to get the idea of what Christ is doing in this part of his sermon, which I, I must say is at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If, if we step back and we look at his, his approach, it begs a question, and, and this is the question that comes to my mind. What is Jesus doing by 
pointing to the inadequacies of the righteousness of the Pharisees when he's teaching about his fulfilling the law. He's teaching about fulfilling the law. Jesus, I fulfilled the law. And then he points to the shallowness and the skin deepness of the righteousness of the Pharisees. What's the connection between the fulfilling of the law, his fulfilling of the law, and the righteousness being modeled by the religious leaders of the day? One could ask, for instance, is Jesus replacing an impossible expectation with an even more demanding expectation? I mean, the fire's already too high, and it sounds like Jesus is raising it up. Not only do you have to control your behavior and be like Paul, faultless in regards to obeying the law, but you have to be above that and beyond that. Is this not upping the ante that Jesus is doing here? And then, and then you look at what he asks us to do in relation to murder and in relation to adultery. Look what he says about murder. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And about adultery uh, and lust, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and, and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Is Jesus saying here that you can't have a healthy and loving relationship with Jesus, with God? You, you, you can't be right with God or righteous unless you both obey the letter of the law do not murder and do not commit adultery, and avoid committing the, the sin that leads to murder and adultery, hate and lust. Well, in a way, Jesus is upping the ante. He's saying, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees but his intention is to get his disciples to try, no, but is his intention to try to get his disciples just to try harder? You, you, you can't commit adultery, but you can't even lust, or, or you're condemned. Well, sadly, this is how many people respond to Christ. They try and try to both be pure behaviorally, you know, obeying the law, the letter of the law, not doing this, not doing that, and in their hearts they try to be pure as well. But they fail. And they become sick of feeling guilty and failing because maybe they cannot murder somebody 
but not to hate somebody is beyond me. So they conclude it's no use. <laughs> I just can't be good enough for Jesus. And ironically, they come to that crossroad in their lives where they fully appreciate their inability to meet God's standards. And that's just where God wants them. But sadly, they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't understand that Jesus fulfilled the law for them. And no matter how hard they try, to even be as good as the Pharisees. They can never be pure enough to be right with God, and therefore we need Jesus. They need Jesus. And so many people turn away from Christianity thinking that it is too high a bar, it is too hard to be a Christian, when the fact of the matter is Jesus has made it a matter of simply putting our faith in him. His righteousness is a righteousness that's not skin deep, but it signifies a purity of the whole person, mind, body, and soul. This is what the writer to Hebrews said when he was writing these words in Hebrews 9. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's what the law does. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience, consciences from acts that lead to death? That is the purifying work of the blood of Christ. It purifies behaviorally, spiritually, mentally, fully, completely, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are made fully whole, absolutely pure before the Holy God. I love what Dale prayed this morning. We are made perfect in Christ in this life. And this is the new covenant that Jeremiah predicted. The writer of Hebrews ascribed to Christ these words. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make, or I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds, and I'll write them <coughs> on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the new covenant that we have in Christ. This is the new righteousness 
See, God understands the devastating effects of the sin on our lives. He understands our nature, and therefore he did what we could not do. He made us righteous. This is why Paul writes in Romans 3.21, But now, apart from the law, a new righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. <clears throat> so this is what I want to close with now. Jesus has pointed out that he has fulfilled the law and that the Pharisees, the righteousness of the Pharisees is inadequate because it's only skin deep and it doesn't purify the whole person. That that is what is required and it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have that. So it raises in my mind another question. If Jesus fulfilled the law for us, if I am righteous, why does he teach me to live a holy life? If I am perfect, if I am made right with God, if I am whole in Christ, why do I have to pursue? Because as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that it's just full of commands to pursue righteousness. And you might say, well, why do I have to do that? if in fact I'm made right in Christ through the blood of Christ. Here's an example in, in, the, in, the, new, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, give to the needy. That's what I need to do behaviorally. I need to give to the needy. But I know that that's not adequate enough. enough. And then Jesus says this, um, do it so that no one else sees you doing it. So why is he interested in that? Because he wants you to obey not just the spirit of the law, but he wants you to obey the, the not just the, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And so he's calling us still to pursue holiness. So why though? Why does Jesus ask us to do this if we're already made holy. We're right. We're justified. Well, we need to be able to understand this very simple concept if we're going to consider and understand the Sermon on the Mount. And that is this, that the pursuit of sanctification is not the pursuit of righteousness. Let me say that again. The pursuit of sanctification is not the pursuit of righteousness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, these words. Speaking to Christians. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, we are washed in the blood of Christ. We are cleansed. That purifying work that is required for us to be right with God is accomplished on our behalf through Jesus Christ. We are washed. And this gives us an entirely new status before God. We are no longer sinners, we are saints. We're no longer dead, we're alive. We're no longer lost, we're found. We are entirely new beings. 
And that is what justification is. We are justified or we are made right with God. But then you'll see that something else happens when we come to Christ. And that is the process of sanctification. And I noticed in John's prayer this morning that he mentioned that, that idea to be sanctified, to continue the journey towards Christ-likeness. That yes, we are made fully and completely whole in Christ, but we are called to continually become more and more like Jesus Christ. This begins the process of sanctification when we give our hearts to Christ, when we are washed, when we are made right, when we are justified. You see, the pursuit of righteousness ends with accepting it as a gift from Christ. Righteousness is a pursuit until you receive it. But then it's no longer a pursuit. The pursuit of sanctification ends when we die. And so here's just a little chart to show you the difference between justification and sanctification. And, and, and think of the word justification as righteousness. Justification is a legal standing. It's once and for all time. It's entirely God's work. It is perfect in this life. It's done completely. And it's the same in all Christians. Anyone who comes to Christ is justified. Sanctification is that internal condition that is continuous through life. We are continually transformed into likeness of Christ. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We never become perfect in this life. Conditionally we are. Behaviorally and in our thought lives we're not. But uh, we, we become perfect ultimately when we die and go to be with Christ. And then finally, it's greater in some and then in others. Some are more sanctified than others because of their willingness to give their lives to Christ and to be sanctified. So yeah, Jesus commands his followers to not murder and not commit adultery, but he also says don't hate or lust. But he's not suggesting that we can earn that righteousness if we can do that. We can't. We accept his righteousness as a gift and we pursue sanctification to become more and more like him because he has become our righteousness for us. He wants us to parlay that righteousness into Christ-likeness through the pursuit of sanctification. And so the righteousness of the Pharisees was at the very least misguided. It was a righteousness based on trying to behaviorally be perfect, even though it never addressed the sins of the heart. A righteousness that is better than the Pharisees is all of these things. It's a righteousness that's bought by Christ's infinitely sufficient death and resurrection. It's a righteousness that placed no confidence in personal effort or outward appearance, a righteousness that's acquired by faith in Christ alone, a righteousness that is, 
righteousness that is sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, a righteousness that energizes our pursuit of sanctification. It's a righteousness that offers us a guarantee of forgiveness when we fail. Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed, must be better than the righteousness of the Pharisees. That is the righteousness that we are, we are given in Christ. I just want to close with a, a confession because I have to confess that it is really hard for me and I have to constantly remind myself that being a Christian isn't about working hard to win God's favor. The Bible and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' red-letter words, are full of instructions on how to be better. And it's so easy for someone like myself, and maybe you're like me, to, to take that as I have to do that in order to be accepted. That's not the case. <laughs> I am accepted. I am loved. I am a child of God. I am righteous, and I am perfect in God's eyes. Those instructions that are given to me are not to earn righteousness, but are to become more like Christ or to be sanctified. It's incredibly freeing when you tap into that idea that your efforts are not the game changer or what makes the difference in your eternal future. It's not your effort. It's not your effort. It's not your effort. You know, when I sing those songs, you know, my chains are gone, I've been set free, I think a lot of people are thinking my chains are, my sin is gone. I've been set free from sin. That's not at all how I think of it. I think of it as my chains are gone. The, the chains that bind me to trying to be good are gone. I've been set free from that. I don't have to be bound by that chain anymore. I've been given a free gift of righteousness in Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for this idea that you fulfilled the law for us because we couldn't. And you impress on us through your word, actually through the example of the Pharisees, that you, you used these words as to make the point that we can try really hard but it'll never be good enough. I thank you that like Paul I have come to understand and I hope each of us comes to understand that our hard work and effort to be righteous are like filthy rags are as Paul said rubbish and that our pursuit to obey the things that you teach us in this sermon are not to win your favor, but are so that we can become more like you. 
having already obtained righteousness through you. Thank you for filling, for fulfilling the law for us. In Jesus' name. Well, thanks for coming up. Be careful on those roads out there. And uh, God bless each one of you.